Looking back, the 1986 Cannes Film Festival boasted an impressive lineup. Films from Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Jim Jarmusch, Woody Allen, Robert Altman, and Neil Jordan all played there that year. First-time filmmaker Spike Lee brought his movie She's Gotta Have It as well. But at the time, the big story of the 1986 Cannes Film Festival belonged to one independent studio. The entire festival was seemingly covered with their posters and billboards, done to announce their arrival on the major stage of the industry along with the Paramounts and Universals of the world. Of course, I'm talking about Canon Films. Only a couple of years ago, Yoram Globus and Menachem Golan's company was held in such little regard that none of its films was officially selected, and the GoGlo boys set up their own alternative film festival in the town. This year, their presence was so powerful that the whole event was pretty nearly the Canon Film Festival. Not only was Cannes adorned or besmirched by posters for their current and forthcoming films, but they also had three pictures in competition. Zeffirelli's Otello with Placido Domingo, Robert Altman's Fool for Love, written by and starring Sam Shepard, and Runaway Train, starring John Voight and Eric Roberts as a pair of runaway convicts in Alaska who escape on a freight train only to find that the train has run away too. It was adapted from a script by Akira Kurosawa, which means that it's not simply an escape story about flight and pursuit. Though it works on that. And all those too. billboards and posters were announcing their next slate of upcoming movies for the next year or so. And for the Paramounts and Universals of the world, that might mean 12 to 15 movies. But Canon was thinking bigger. Much bigger. At the 1986 Cannes Film Festival, they put out an announcement for 60 different movies. 60. For comparison, Paramount Pictures put out 28 movies in 1986 and 87 combined. Universal put out 29. So Canon's 60 film announcement was impressive and crazy at the same time. A couple of those titles were already finished and appearing at Cannes. Robert Altman's Cannes entry, Fool for Love, for example, was done for Canon. But about 20 of those films were never made, and all we have for most of them is an ad that ran in the trades announcing a star or a director and a title. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, presented by Movie Maker, we're taking a look at this list of films that Canon didn't make, and we'll find out what these movies were supposed to be and what happened to them. Welcome to the industry. Canon was founded in 1967 and started out by making English-language versions of Swedish softcore movies. This period is likely best known for the movie Joe, which was a surprise hit for Canon in 1970 and introduced us to not only Peter Boyle, but director John G. Avildsen. When Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus bought the Canon Group in 1979, the company was in dire straits financially. Their stock was worth about 25 cents a share. Now, with Golan and Globus in charge, things were going to change. And yes, they certainly made their share of schlocky movies. Okay, they made more than their share. But, Canon was also making money and inching their way up the Hollywood ladder. By the time the Go-Go Boys showed up at the Cannes Film Festival wearing matching tracksuits and announcing 60 movies, Canon was trading at $36 a share. Well, I think to properly wrap one's brain around what Canon was doing with their 60-page spread in the 1986 Cannes Film Festival, all of the trade papers, we need to consider that this was probably the best of times at the Canon Group under Golan and Globus. 
if we were looking at their run at the head of the company as a roller coaster, this May of 1986 would have been the point where the cars were just at the summit of the arch and were about to take a massive plunge. This is Austin Trunick. He's the author of The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, 1980 to 1984. He's currently working on Volume 2. These were the good times for Canon when, even for just the briefest time spans, I think Hollywood is beginning to take them seriously with, let's just look at some of their success they'd had. They'd had uh, with Break-In and Missing Action in 1984, they had two legitimate runaway box office hits. Then in 1985, all three of Death Wish 3, Invasion USA, and King Solomon's Mines were number one at the U.S. box office when they debuted. On top of this, just a few months before the Cannes Film Festival that year, they were represented by three Oscar nominees. All for Runaway Train, you had John Voight, Eric Roberts, and Henry Richardson, who's best editing. And gosh, at this time, they were making movies with big name directors. You had John Cassavetes, Franco Zaffarelli, Robert Altman, John Frankenheimer, 52 Pickup, which we just mentioned, John Luke Godard, Norman Mailer, and they were in talks with big name stars, not ones they would make movies with all of them, but they were at least, these people like Sylvester Stallone, Al Pacino, and Dustin Hoffman were considering making movies at Cannon. So in May of 1986, the time of the Cannes Film Festival and their 60-page announcement, Cannon Films was actually flush with money, and people had noticed. The Go-Go Boys in their tracksuits even made it to the cover of Newsweek magazine. The feature story told of how Golan and Globus, Hollywood outsiders from Israel, had overcome the sneers and snobbery of the major studios and now had to be taken seriously. Scaling Hollywood's so-called slippery heights wasn't so easy. Agents ignored their phone calls in the early days. As the new boys in town, and not particularly smooth boys at that, they were frozen out of the lunchtime and evening deal-making that is Hollywood's formula for success. Golan recalled, We came to the mecca of the motion picture industry, and we prayed and prayed, and nobody listened. Today, almost everybody listens, whether they like the Canon impresarios or not. So Canon was now flush with money, and they started to spend it, but not on movies. They'd been extended a major line of credit, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they had, a, with that, a successful sale of stocks just recently. And so for once, they were flush with cash, and they had money to back up all of their crazy claims they would make year after year. Unfortunately, instead of spending that money to make films as they should have, the movie, especially when the money was being extended to them by the investors to make films, they went and spent it was particularly $270 million to purchase Thorn EMI, which included the, the, the British company, which included their back catalog of movies, their theater chain in the UK, and the Elstree Studios, which is where they shot Empire Strikes Back and Rares of the Lost Ark. And if you're a company like Canon, who your bread and butter is making five to $10 million Chuck Norris movies, I don't know why you need the studio where they shot Empire Strikes Back and The Shining. But that's what they did. And I think that was part of their bid to be taken seriously. They wanted to compete with the major studios. They wanted to go from being what they had dubbed themselves the mini major to being an actual major. In some sense, they believed that by acquiring all these things, that that would put them closer there. Unfortunately, by... Just a few months after Cannes, they were $100 million in the red and bailing buckets of water over the side of the ship just to stay afloat. And pretty quickly, things changed for Cannon. May of 86, these projects looked like a good idea. By August of 86, 
the people were backing away. Before we go down the list of unmade films, I should point out that most of the films on this list did get made. Movies like Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, Over the Top, 52 Pickup, a movie I really like, Duet for One, Surrender, Otello, Shy People, Firewalker, Street Smart, Murphy's Law, River of Death, Runaway Train, which had already been released, Fool for Love, which was playing at the Cannes Film Festival, King Lear, which was a Jean-Luc Godard film, Tough Guys Don't Dance, Poacazzi, Number One with a Bullet, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold, Invaders from Mars, Salome, Delta Force, Dangerously Close, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and Down Twisted were among the movies that were actually made by Canon. And what wasn't made? Let's start off with Investigation. If I could pick one movie from this list and will it into existence, it would be this one. All right, well, that was their Al Pacino movie. That was the one that they had had Al lined up for. It was going to be a remake of the 1970 Italian film, a Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. It was had a script by Paul Schrader, and it was going to be directed by Andre Konchalovsky. Unfortunately, by the time Canon actually got serious about making this, they were already falling apart, and Pacino went running for the hills. The script exists. Um, they had taken out a lot of ads for this one. They actually had sent tried to sell this to investors. So I have some paperwork and synopses and things like that that they had actually show to uh, buyers in other countries trying to raise the budget to actually shoot it. Canon budgeted most of their movies through pre-sales and selling them to foreign investors first. Once they had had enough buyers to really justify making the film, they would then go and send it into production. So this is one that they had actually gotten to the point where they were sending a synopsis around, they had artwork made up, there was a script, Pacino was attached, but they just couldn't raise enough money in time. And especially by the time Canon was shopping, them bigger budget movie like that, people were kind of scared about their, their viability as a company. Then there's Second Life. Second Life is another one that is fortunately very little I know about that. I haven't seen a synopsis or any sort of just script summary, but it would have been uh, directed by Maximilian Schell from Judgment at Nuremberg. And he's the only talent I'm aware of that was attached. And he's just as a director, not as an actor. That I'm unclear on. Up next, we have the interestingly titled The Second Killing of the Dog. The Second Killing of the Dog, I don't know very much about this at all, other than it was going to be directed by Hector Babenko. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but the director of Kiss of the Spider Woman. And that's, that's really all I know about that one. Okay, so it's just an interesting title. Next up, we have Zorba the Musical. Anthony Quinn recreates his greatest screen triumph as Zorba. From the smash Broadway musical, adapted from Nikos Kazantzakis bestseller, Zorba, a man in love with life. Anthony Quinn in Zorba the Musical. Pretty much what I assume, <laughs> what I assume you think, think it is. It's just the musical version of the Anthony Quinn movie. It would have starred Anthony Quinn though, which is interesting. I have a feeling that Anthony Quinn would have starred in Zorba the Greek restaurant commercials if it had been offered. But let's move on to The Yellow Jersey. Yellow Jersey is actually a movie that had been around since the 70s, a project that had so many different people attached for 
years and years. Um, I know Michael Cimino was attached at one point. Um, Dustin Hoffman for many years was going to star up until at least the point where Canon became involved. So this is a project that I guess the equivalent of like a, a blacklist script that people loved and they wanted to make. It was direct. It was based on a novel about the Tour de France by the May 86 Cannes Film Festival had actually gone to the Tour de France and had shot B-roll footage. They had sent a crew there and spent a couple million dollars just, just shooting like the bike race to use essentially as B-roll and they would film all of the scenes later on. By the time of Cannes, there was no, or Cannes, there was no, no, no director, no talent attached, but um, at, at different points, it was it was said that Malcolm Golan would have directed it himself and that he was considering Christopher Lambert of Highlander to be the star. And Tales of Hoffman, which is not about Dustin, but rather it's an opera. Tales of Hoffman would have just been the opera. It was actually going to be their follow-up to the Otello with Placido Domingo. So it would have, it would have starred Placido Domingo. And then we had this. From the master of suspense, Roman Polanski, the director who brought you the terror of Rosemary's Baby. God is dead! The passion of Tess. The mystery of Chinatown. Chinatown. Now brings you a spellbinding new film for canon. And what was the untitled Roman Polanski project? Well, that was a untitled Roman Polanski film. So Canon had, they had picked up the rights to Pirates to distribute it. This was a movie that bounced around for a lot of different backers. The budget kept going up. It was a very, very expensive film. And by the time Canon came on board, it was already, I think, it seems like it was considered it was going to be box office poison. The companies that had sunk all these millions of dollars into it didn't want to spend the millions of dollars it still needed to see it through because they knew they wouldn't recoup that based on what they'd seen. But Canon, being Menachem Blonde, being obsessed with great filmmakers and being a serious company, saw Roman Polanski's name and wanted to get involved. He was probably one of the last people, I think, who was very eager to work with Roman Polanski. They picked up pirates, and part of the deal was they thought, they saw the ships that, that Polanski had built and thought, okay, we can recoup some of our costs making more movies on these ships, making a TV series, a pirate's TV, like a pirate TV series. But that never happened. But that was that was their justification of sinking all this money because they would have also gotten all the sets that came with it. My assumption, because this is always advertised in all of Canon's different catalogs I've seen it in, as an untitled Roman Polanski movie. And I don't think they ever had a premise. They didn't have anything what it was about. I think once they had agreed to do to to help him get pirates out in front of people that Polanski said, oh, sure, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll direct a movie for you guys. Go ahead, go ahead, you can just say. And so Canon being Canon went and ran with that. They made ads that it's just a picture of Roman Polanski and it says an untitled Roman Polanski film. I have a theory though. If you look at May of 1986, there's articles out there that Canon was working really hard to pick up the rise to the two Jakes the Robert Town script, sequel to Chinatown, which was, of course, one of Polanski's best films. And Canon had actually come to a point where they had announced at the same camp that they would be purchasing the rights 
contingent on Jack Nicholson agreeing to do it. Now, I don't think that, that never, it, it never went beyond that. I don't think Nicholson was ever seriously interested in working with Canon. But I think Canon somewhere in their head might have thought, we'll buy the two Jakes, Jack Nicholson sign on, and then we'll get Roman Plansky to direct the Chinatown, Chinatown 2, and we'll call it Chinatown 2. That's, that's just my suspicion of how <laughs> Canon might have been thinking about this. Okay, but what was this supposed to be? John Travolta. In Saturday Night Fever, he became an overnight sensation. In Greece, he became an international star. In Urban Cowboy, he changed the look of America. Now, Canon Films proudly announces John Travolta in his most exciting project yet. Public Enemies, that's, a, that's an interesting one because it is a buddy cop comedy. Action comedy, it would have starred John Travolta. At, in the 1986 ad, it would have starred John Travolta and Whoopi Goldberg. There is an LA Times article that describes this a little bit. And it's two detectives get executed by a gang. And so the police force brings in a reluctant conservative cop played by John Travolta and they pair him with what the LA Times described as a gung-ho Rambo-esque rookie who would have been played by Whoopi. And the producers described it as Abbott and Costello meets the French Connection. <laughs> it was it was one of two Whoopi Goldberg projects that they announced at at Canon '86. You might be aware of this, but uh, Whoopi was originally Chuck Norris had seen her in her stage show, her one woman show, and had tried to cast her in Invasion USA. And Canon had said no because she wasn't a big star. Then she immediately made the color purple, and Canon regretted. <laughs> not casting her in that movie. And so I think in, by 1986, they lined her up for as many projects as they could. And she just grew as a star too fast for them to actually make either of these movies for her. The other one was Born Yesterday with, she would have started with Walter Matthau. And it was a political thriller with Walter Matthau actually playing the bad guy. He was a corrupt garbage dump mogul and he was trying to bribe senators to let him have the salvage rights to all of the world's battlefields, salvaging tanks and and Whoopi would have played a showgirl. The part was originally, earlier on, had Bernadette Peters attached to this role, but Whoopi replaced her, who falls in love with the journalist who's investigating her, her corrupt boyfriend. And of course, who's in the closet? Who's in the closet is uh, George Siegel. But it would have starred George Siegel as a politician who, on the eve of his election, finds out that his son is gay. It would have been a comedy, and it would have been reuniting him with director Melvin Frank, who did A Touch of Class, which was one of Siegel's better-remembered movies from earlier in his career. Interesting. And and is there a, a script to that one? Yes, yes, that's that's out there. Um, that floated around for quite a year, quite a quite a while, because Cannon spent years trying to make that. That, that project actually has a longer life for one that didn't get made than a lot of these because they kind of held on to it and at least we're trying to make it in, into the 90s from what I what I know. Do, do you feel it's because they necessarily believed in that script? I think so. And in the case of Canon, they they really liked working with these older older directors and producers. And I think Melvin Frank was probably someone that's Menachem Milan just, just bonded with or liked. <laughs> And a sequel to the movie Joe. 
1969, Joe told the world what he thought about the youth movement. We're getting away with murder, sex, drugs, pissing on America, fucking up the music. Then Joe became involved in it. He just beat the world's speed record. Later that same year, Joe was convicted for the killing of eight youths in upstate New York. There's only one way out now. Clean. That means everybody. Now, in 1985, Joe has been released from prison. The times have changed, but the man hasn't. Citizen Joe, he's back. Yeah, so that was actually one of the rare cases where Cannon was make, wanted to make a sequel to an older movie, but they actually owned the rights to that movie. Um, they had made you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Death Wish 2, Exterminator 2, Superman 4. These are all other companies' movies. But Joe was the Peter Boyle movie from 1970, made by John Abelson, the Rocky director. And it was actually the pre-Golan and Globus Cannon's biggest hits. And I don't know much about the plot of this one or what it would have been, but it the script is credited to Peter Boyle as a co-writer and Leslie Stevens, who wrote a lot of Outer Limits episodes, but he also wrote and directed uh, Three Kinds of Heat for Canon in 1987. And this would have actually supposedly been directed by John Avildsen again. So yeah, that's that's interesting. He was actually attached at the point during May 86 Cannes Film Festival. Peter Boyle was still talking about making this one as late as November of 1987. This brings us to the Canon movie tales. This part of Canon's ad listed a number of movies aimed at children. I've seen them at this point, and they're very similar. They're... The idea was that Canon wanted to, especially they they had all they had owned a lot of theater chains at this point, and they wanted product that they could show as basically weekend matinees that would compete with what back then were just Disney films being re-released every summer. And Canon it actually wasn't a bad idea, but they looked at that and they're like, okay, let's let's put kid movies in our theaters on weekends, sell cheap tickets, and we'll fill the box office. So we do a bunch of them for very cheap. It, it, it could turn a good profit. So a lot of these were made in basically what amounted to warehouses out in uh, Tel Aviv. And they were all filmed in the same place. Some of them used the same sets. A lot of them overlapping, overlapping talent. But what they did was get, in most cases, one or two named stars. You have Christopher Walken starring in, um, in Puss in Boots. You have, gosh... Um, who, who is it? Um, Amy Irving in, uh, she's in one of them. You have, uh, Cloris Leachman in Hansel and Gretel. So it was, it was one of these cases. They, these were clearly B movies where they could get one named star to appear in them and sort of surround them with a lot of local Israeli actors that they had worked with many, many times over the years. And yeah, so Canon had actually put a good chunk of their 1986 ad is devoted to these. And the funny thing about them is most of them are just naming fairy, they're just naming fairy tales. There's anything that was public domain that they could potentially turn into a movie. So they didn't, they, they never made the Pied Piper, they never made Cinderella, which they announced, Gulliver's Travels, which they announced, Robinson Caruso. These, 
these were just movies that I think they sat around at a board meeting and wrote them up on a whiteboard that like that would make a good kids movie. So, so, so like the 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 ads that have these particular ones like Cinderella, the Pied Piper, etc. Mm-hmm. Th- there's there's no one that's attached to them. It's just hey, here's the title and this is coming. Right, right. For it's just the Pied Piper and it's a generic drawing. It looks like a children a cover of a children's book, but they have no names attached. Even the ones they made, no no names attached at this point because they made these all in the space of just you know, really a few months, <laughs> bang, bang, bang after another in the same locations. I should point out that nine, yes, nine canon movie tales do exist. They are. The Frog Prince with Helen Hunt, Sleeping Beauty with Morgan Fairchild, The Emperor's New Clothes with Sid Caesar, Stiltskin with Billy Barty in the role he was born to play, Snow White with Diana Rigg, she's the evil queen, Beauty and the Beast with Rebecca de Mornay, Hansel and Gretel with Cloris Leachman, Little Red Riding Hood with Isabella Rossellini, and yes, best of all, there is Puss in Boots starring Christopher Walken as Puss. And this brings us to our last movie on the list. And it's the one unmade canon film that has gotten the most amount of interest. Spider-Man. Within this unsuspecting city, history's greatest experiment creates tomorrow's greatest superhero, Spider-Man, the movie. A live-action spectacular directed by Joe Zito, based on the characters created by Stan Lee. And when it comes to Canon's version of Spider-Man, there is one rumor I have always read but never officially confirmed. All right, so let me ask you this. Is it true that uh, Golan thought that Spider-Man was a person that had eight arms and legs. That, I believe, at this point, I can't confirm whether it's anything more than urban legend, but based on his understanding of superheroes and buying the Spider-Man rights and the Captain America rights at the time when Marvel was really at the, about to shudder, it wouldn't have surprised me. Originally, he had assigned the project to Toby Hooper. With that sort of thinking, I wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have surprised me had Galan thought this was more of a Teen Wolf type character about a teenager who turned into a warped spider thing, and that would have been directed by Toby Hooper and been this sort of like scary horror comedy. But I don't. I don't actually have any scripts or synopses that back that up. There is a synopsis that is written by Menachem Golan, and it's more of your standard Spider-Man origin story. So I think it, by the by the point that the, the earliest evidence I have, if he did understand that, somebody took him aside and showed him the comic books and be like, said, Menachem, this, this is not a giant spider monster. This is, <laughs> this told him what it was. Is it okay that I want that story to be true? Anyway, instead of Toby Hooper directing a monster version of Spider-Man, things went in a different, somewhat more traditional direction. Joe Zito, whose name you heard in that brief trailer, was named director. Right, right. When when Cannon's relationship with Hooper went sour after he went way over on Invaders from Mars and then they rushed him through Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and were very displeased with what they got, not knowing that this whole time that he was making a basically a comedy, a horror comedy, they then assigned it to to Joe Zito, 
and of, of Invasion USA um, fame. And Josito spent years working on this. There's actually a little gap in his career where you can see he didn't do anything when he was really at the height of his game. And that's because he was working on Spider-Man. And at various points, they had considered Michael Dudikoff would have played Peter Parker. There were points where Scott Leva, who was a stuntman who'd actually taken a lot of pictures and appeared on a Spider-Man cover in the Spider-Man costume in a photograph, was, was considered, but this is a project that went on and on. Eventually, when Zito dropped out, it went to Albert Pune. And then, of course, when that fell apart, part of the set was used for Cyborg. <laughs> Cyborg is a 1989 post-apocalyptic thriller starring Jean-Claude Van Damme as a guy who has to protect a cyborg. And that brings us to the end of our list of unmade canon films. But I still need to know a little more about Spider-Man. And fortunately, I was able to find someone with some first-hand knowledge. You know, it all just felt like everybody was doing this on a shoestring and nobody really believed it was ever going to happen. This is John Brancato. He's a screenwriter who, along with his writing partner, Michael Ferris, has written a number of successful feature films, like The Net with Sandra Bullock, Terminator Salvation, and David Fincher's The Game. But in the early 80s, he, along with his then-writing partner, Ted Newsom, landed the job of writing the screenplay for Canon's Spider-Man. I had been working with Stan Lee on a, on a project called Sergeant Fury and His Howling Commandos, one of the lesser projects in the Marvel Universe. For you non-Marvel people, Sergeant Fury became Nick Fury, who was played by Sam Jackson in the MCU, and the Howling Commandos appeared in Captain America First Avenger. I met Stan, agents, set up a cold meeting. Uh, I was working with a guy named Ted Newsom at the time. Really hit it off with Stan, talked about a couple of projects, and he just sort of hired us, I was non-guild at the time, to write Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos for Marvel Productions for, like, next to no money. And the work on Sergeant Fury goes well. Then, Stan Lee has good news. Forget Sergeant Fury, Canon Films is calling, and they want to make Spider-Man. And just a quick note here, John Brancato's descriptions and opinions of Canon Films and his experiences with them are his own. Fantastic Spider-Man, and it was going to be a guild project. It's actually the project that got me invited to join the Writers Guild in 1985. So there was a fun way in and it was really fun to work on i mean i knew spider-man comics from childhood reading them again doing the sort of spider-man origin story intertwined with a Ock Ock origin story was the idea and we mostly worked with stan on the early phases of it he had a terrible treatment he, he was actually not much of a screenwriter but he had this kind of clunky treatment for how to do the story which was mostly exactly the comic book from you know back when he had done with steve ditko and that really wasn't modern feeling. So the concept was to make it sort of trippier and more modern and more visual. And he basically told Canon Films, because he liked our initial outline, to hire us. After getting the job from Canon, John and his writing partner Ted meet up with a producer to discuss the screenplay. I still remember, like, my first meeting over there was, was kind of weird. It was not with Menahan Golan and... Yoram Globus. It was with, uh, I wish I remembered his name. I went through old notebooks to try to crack it. I could not find out his name, but he was a guy, he seemed impossibly old to me. I mean, I was 25. He was really heavy set, but heavy set in like a 
kind of 1950s gangster looking way, like square, like his body like it's been hewn from a cube, but not very well. And he had sort of a square head and short hair and baggy eyes and said almost nothing. He was really mysterious, in fact. In meetings, you know, we'd talk, we'd say, here's how we see a character, intertwine the origin story of both Spider-Man and Doc Ock and do this and do that. And love interest is a character we're inventing or actually from a later part of Spider-Man's universe. Anyway, we had this whole thing worked out. And he pretty much nodded and said almost nothing, except, this is true, he ate cigarettes. I'd never seen anybody do that before or since. Maybe he was trying to quit. He would put a Pall unfiltered cigarette in his mouth at the beginning of a meeting and slowly, using his lips, suck it into his mouth and chew it and eat it. Until by the end of the meeting, it was gone. It was like the length of the meeting had to be the length of a cigarette eating contest. I, I don't know, it was really, it was really weird. It's around this time that Joe Zito is brought in to direct. Zito had already worked with Cannon a couple of times on the Chuck Norris films Missing in Action and Invasion USA. And the next thing I knew, they'd hired a director, a guy named Joe Zito. I saw like a rough cut of Invasion USA, which he was finishing up at the time. And it didn't really seem like he was the perfect director for this project. And when we tried to be really true to the tone of Spider-Man, so it's, you know, adolescent angst and comedy and so on. Everybody knows what Spider-Man is like. And this guy was just standard, tedious, self-serious action. It just didn't seem like it was going to come out well, but you know, you don't tell yourself that when you're on a project. You're, you're hoping somehow this director who, I remember he like wore cargo pants that were stuffed with, I don't know what, and actually wore one of those director lens things around his neck. You know, I think he'd seen like Eric von Stroheim do it. Kind of strange guy and not very warm or friendly. And his, I just don't remember, his, his input was not very useful. It wasn't very significant. And if John wasn't very impressed with Joe Zito, well, Joe Zito wasn't very impressed with John's script. I don't think he really appreciated the sort of Spider-Man tongue-in-cheek tone that the script certainly had, and I think he wanted to make it less jokey, make the characters less talkative, less clever, you know, make it more action-driven. A couple of drafts um, for him, and then the next thing was, it's supposed to go into production. It's like, uh, really? Uh, okay. And this is when Canon is coming out with its, it's like blowing money all over the place. It built this horrible building on San Vicente, remember that especially because we started having meetings there. In early 1986, both John and Ted are invited to the grand opening of the brand new building that Cannon had built in L.A. You know, the horrible one. The party is in the parking garage. I and mean, this building is almost entirely a parking garage. So I guess they expected, you know, people to have multiple cars there for each office. I remember there was like high security. It was black tie. It was, you know, you had to check in and who you were and then they'd let you in and it was in the parking garage which at least wasn't greasy yet because it was such a new building um and you walk up the ramps and you walk past these like big screen televisions that they'd set up which had were flashing like posters of all their upcoming movies that they were out to sell like at con or something and one of them showed spider-man it would hold on it for like a minute and i was like Oh my God, they did a poster. And, and I looked at it and there was my name and it was my first name ever on a movie poster. So that was kind of exciting, even though it wasn't a movie yet. 
but it was a fun party and you know people went up to the roof and got stoned and things like that and that was pretty much the end of my association with canon and that was it the party took place before the 86 can film festival so canon still had it in some form of production but john didn't really hear from them again at least not regarding Spider-Man. We also got a call saying they really love the Spider-Man script. I didn't know that. But apparently Menahem and Yoram really liked the script that we turned in. And they want to hire you to do Superman 4. Yeah, and we had like one phone call. Like, what's your take on Superman 4? And I remember it was like sitting in Ted Newsom's apartment in the Valley talking on the phone about how you might approach yet another Superman movie. And then that was it. We never heard from them from again. That was... One phone call. And it was just one call. Out of the blue. Pitch us your best Superman idea. Right now. It was again, we had no time to prepare. We'd gotten the call and said they want to talk to you about Superman 4. And it was like, oh, I guess we'd get some time to think about that. But we didn't. Like, I want to talk to you, like, now or in an hour. It's like, okay. Uh, Humming, humming, humming. And just think about it. Out of all these unmade movies we went over, this fact is really staggering to me. At one point, Canon Films held the cinematic rights to Spider-Man and Superman at the same time. Understand that a lot of Canon deals were made on napkins, famously. So, yeah, they weren't exactly the most legally binding. So a lot of these movies could get announced with stars attached that really, it meant that the star was maybe told about it, maybe not. Maybe their agent mentioned it to them over drinks or something. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of these were kind of just slapped together really fast by Canon's sales department. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. For information about what's going on in movies or how to make them yourself, visit moviemaker.com. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Dan Delgado, Special thanks to my guests, screenwriter John Brancato and author Austin Trunick. Austin's book, The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, is available on Amazon, and I highly recommend it. It is not simply a list of films that Canon made, but rather he goes into each one and gives you some of the fun backstory that went into all of those insane Canon films. It is a great read. Thanks to Eric Stoyer, who read that paragraph from Newsweek. Eric hosts the Movie Maker Interviews podcast, which clearly I recommend that. And he also is the host of the Open Minds podcast from Creative Commons. Go and look that up. Check it out as well. It is good stuff. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or whatever app you have. It helps with the rankings and visibility, and basically it costs you nothing. If you really like this episode, you can visit my website, industrypodcast.org, and hit the Buy Me a Coffee button. I would likely use this to actually buy coffee because I drink a lot of it. The show notes with the list of sources used for this episode and links to everything that I've mentioned will be in the blog section. If you would like to get in touch with me, you certainly can do that. Send an email to dan at moviemaker.com. You can also tweet at me. I am at the industry 13. You can follow on Instagram. That's industry underscore podcast. And on Facebook, it's at the industry pod. Thanks again for listening to this episode. My name is Dan Delgado, and I will be back again soon with another seemingly forgotten story from the industry.